when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Glad you're with me today. Thanks again for all of the comments and reviews and lovely things that you're saying about the podcast. I'm so glad that it's speaking to you. I love seeing more and more of you join the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group where we discuss the concepts here in the podcast and in the book. And if you haven't gotten the book yet, you can go to fromhostagetohero.com to check it out and find out what your options are for purchase. All right. So today we're talking about how your case is never about your client. So I've been talking about this quite a bit with with my clients lately, and I thought, you know, I should do a podcast on this because I think although you get this, you don't either know how to do it or really can pull it through um, clearly. So I just wanted to do a podcast on it to help you really align with what it is that we're trying to do with all of our cases, our plaintiff cases that we are bringing to trial. I mean, as you know, especially if you've been doing this 20 or 30 years, as most of my clients have, trial work has changed. The jurors have changed. And due to tort reform, we are now up against a very different set of problems than we ever had before in terms of how to craft or frame our messages so that jurors can receive them. You know, I always remember uh, Rick Friedman in a seminar that I was in with him saying, we used to look at the plaintiff and say, there but by the grace of God go I, meaning I could have been walking down the street, minding my business in a crosswalk and had the garbage truck rip, rip my you know leg from its body. Uh, but now, due to tort reform and other types of media messages and the McDonald's coffee problem and all that kind of thing, uh, we now look at the defendant, and we meaning jurors, and say, there but by the grace of God go I, meaning we're such a sue happy culture and, you know, these people come out and they sue and it's not even a meritous case and I could be sued if I make a single little mistake, right? So things have changed and there's been a lot of attempts to try to remedy that. You know, one of the best attempts that's come out in recent years has been the reptile method now called Keenan's Edge and that was based or is based on the entire premise that we need to tap into the juror's reptile brain, meaning the place in which they make decisions based on self-protection, uh, fear. And although, and I don't want to get in debate about reptile, uh, you know, David Ball is a colleague of mine. I know Don and I respect the hell out of both of them. So this is not an anti-reptile podcast. There's, I teach a lot of the things that they talk about in their respective books. But the problem that I have with that is that it doesn't go far enough and that, yes, we definitely want 
to, and one of the things I use quite a bit from that method is the whole idea of spreading the tentacles of danger, which is kind of what we're talking about here partly in today's podcast. But for me, you know, someone said this years and years ago, they said, we tend to make all of our decisions based from one of two places. We, we tend to make our decisions from fear or from love. And I think that when I say that, it kind of reflects what I just said in that we used to look at the plaintiff and out of love, out of compassion, uh, we being jurors, would award a verdict because we felt so bad for them, sympathy. And now the tide has turned to say, no, 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 no. Instead of applying to jurors love or compassion, there's that side, we need to appeal to their fear, to their, this could happen to me, to the, you know, that could have been my child, my grandmother, my mother. And and so I'm going to say that yes and no. I don't, love fear-based decisions. I mean, there's a lot of research out there that suggests that when we make decisions from fear, it's a react a reactive type of decision. It's one that we make quickly without thinking. And although that can be good for the plaintiff, it's not always good. And sometimes fear uh, takes us in the opposite direction. When you think about my book, From Hostage to Hero, my entire premise is that jurors are hostages. They are in fight or flight, i.e. fear. And my premise is that most decisions, good decisions, do not come from that place. And so the answer, I don't think, is to try to go back to the old way, quote unquote, and try to appeal to a juror's sympathy or compassion. I, I really believe that there's something bigger at play here that that we can use and work with, and that is to create a principle-centered case. So what do I mean by a principle-centered case? Well, if you've been following me for a while, you know that I talk about the issue-oriented voir dire. So let me start there. So in an issue-oriented voir dire, the entire premise of that is that we talk about the issues in our case. And of course, we can't talk about facts or evidence or major details. So what we end up talking about when we're talking about a principled center or an issue-centered voir dire is, or issue-oriented, I should say, is we talk about the principle, the principles beneath the issues in our case. Now, here's where we get a little bit confused about what we mean by principles. Uh, So let me step back. I'm I'm going really to an old book. And if you haven't read this book, you must read it at some point in your life. Or if you've read it, you must definitely go back and read it again. (laughs) And that is The Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. You know, Stephen Covey is now gone. He passed away several years ago, but this book is still a classic. And in fact, when I was going to grad school as a classical pianist and was taking my piano pedagogy course, pedagogy meaning how to learn to teach, so how to teach piano course in grad school, my uh, instructor and person who became my mentor and to this day is still my mentor, assigned us seven books. I think two of them were music books. The other five were all self-development books because she really believed that we teach who we are and to be good teachers, we had to be good people. And I've just taken that with me now for, for the last 20 years. I just have so believe in that message of um, figuring out who we are as people. And that affects, of course, how we communicate in the world. 
And so in the book, um, The Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey does a really great job talking about the difference between values and principles and paradigms. So let's start with paradigms because paradigms, I think, is what most attorneys wrestle with. And this is what sends you guys and gals down the rabbit hole when you are trying to uh, persuade or influence a juror to your point of view. So paradigm, for example, is a model or a theory or a frame, a way of seeing the world. So he gives an example in the book about Chicago. So I'm going to just read from a little bit because he says it so much better than I can say it. So he says, suppose you wanted to arrive at a specific location in central Chicago. A street map of the city would be a great help to you in reaching your destination. But suppose you were given the wrong map. Through a printing error, the the map labeled Chicago was actually a map of Detroit. Can you imagine the frustration, the ineffectiveness of trying to reach your destination? You might try to work on your behavior. You could try harder, be more diligent, double your speed, but your efforts would only succeed in getting you to the wrong place faster. You might work on your attitude. You could think more positively. You still wouldn't get to the right place, but perhaps you wouldn't care. Your attitude would be so positive, you'd be happy wherever you are. The point is, you'd still be lost. The fundamental problem has nothing to do with your behavior or your attitude, and it has everything to do with having a wrong map. So paradigms are maps. They are the way that we see the world. They are the way that we view what it is that we, what is happening to us. As, as Covey says, that when we talk about maps, we have several in our head, and they can be in two main categories. One category is the way things are or realities. And the other category is the way things should be or values. Now, principles are not values, meaning even as he says, thieves, a gang of thieves can share common values. That's not the same thing as principles. And we'll go into principles in just a minute. Let's stay with paradigms. Every single juror comes into the jury box or to the jury selection process with a set of paradigms, meaning they a way that they view the world. And here's what I see trial attorneys attempting to do over and over again. They try to frame their case to fit the worldview or paradigm of the jurors. The problem is, here's the problem with that, is that every single juror has different paradigms. And so it's nearly impossible to try to match up your case and frame it in a way that will match the paradigm of the juror and jurors that you're speaking to because they hold so many different paradigms. You know, in the, in the Seven Habits book, he gives an example. And if you, I don't know what version you're going to get. So maybe this is the wrong page number, but I'll throw it out there. On page 29, I'm sorry, 25, he has a picture, a drawing of a woman. And depending, and what they did this, this, um, research study. And so they handed out, uh, half the class got pictures of young woman and half the class got pictures of an old woman, a crony with a big nose. Then they showed the drawing, which is kind of an amalgam of the two of them. And they asked the class, what do you see? 
And so half of the class, because they were primed, they came in with the paradigm of young woman. We're like, I see this beautiful woman. She's got this tiny little nose and she's kind of turned away and is wearing this beautiful necklace. And the other half of the class was like, what the hell are you talking about? A young woman, this woman is old with a huge nose and she's got this this droopy face with these eyes and she's wearing this big shawl. And they're like, no, 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 that's not a shawl, that's her hair. And back and forth they went. Both of them, of course, were right. Had nothing to do with the rightness of it is that their paradigm coming in affected how they saw things. So you might hear me talk about this and think, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? If I can't apply or frame my case to the different paradigms that jurors have, what can I do? Well, here, here's what you can do is we can now move to a principle-centered case. I mean, this is what it taught when we're talking about how your case is never about your client is because when you make it about your client, of course, all the tort reform stuff comes in and, and, and all of that, that business. I mean, think about it this way. Think about our young men and women who sign up willingly to go to war. They don't do that for individuals. All right. They're not out there fighting for specific people. In fact, they have to leave specific people that they love at home as they go and risk their lives. What are they risking their lives for? Principles. They are fighting for principles. Now, principles are different than values, i.e. things people care about or, or share among them. And they're different from paradigms, which are maps in the way that we see the world. Principles are deep fundamental truths that have universal application. And and they're like natural laws. In the book, Stephen Covey has a great example of a principle um, and, and how they're natural laws and they cannot be violated. In fact, he says that you can continue to break your, uh, you can't break the law, but you can break yourself against the law. I love that analogy. So here he tells a story about um, these principles or principles in general, as told by Frank Koch of Proceedings or In Proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute. So here's what Frank has to say about principles. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. Lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came a signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I'm a captain, change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. That's the point of principles. They are something that are true regardless of what people hold in terms of values or paradigms. And this makes your job much, much 
easier. If you can align your case, and you can because every case can, with principles that all humans either hold or are natural laws, regardless of whether they hold, you can now frame your case that way. And by the way, this is what really makes a difference because like the the going to war example, people are way more likely to come together because of a principle of something that they want to see or not see violated, that they want to see all the way through versus, as much as we would like to think the opposite, coming together to help a single individual. The more you make your case about your plaintiff, the less and the, or the, the farther away you get jurors from the principle in the case, which is what will bind them together as a group to come and fight, just like our, our military veterans have done, for that principle, for that right or wrong. So here's some example of principles. There are principles like betrayal or fairness, honesty, loyalty, human dignity slash respect, human potential, belonging, promise keeping slash trustworthiness, accountability, responsibility, law abiding slash rule keeping, social contracts, you know, social contracts are a big one. How we come together as a society and we all agree kind of just in our DNA, it's nothing we ever said out loud, to certain things so that society can operate as effectively as possible. We use social contracts a lot in car crash cases and how we all keep ourselves safe on the road so that everybody can stay safe on the road. For example, in the Dram Shop case that you've heard me talk about, because I just love this case so much, um, in the last couple months since I've been there, I've just continue to mull over it. There's so many lessons there. But a big issue in that case, as are in in a lot of our cases, was the idea or the issue of personal responsibility. All three trial attorneys were like, here's our big issue in this case is that these conservative jurors or really any jurors are all about personal responsibility. Hey, what's the deal? Why are we blaming the bar when the driver is the one who chose to drink so much and then leave leave and get in a car and kill two cyclists and harm a third. What about personal responsibility? So that was a big theme, or not a big theme, a big issue in our case that we had to deal with. And here's how we dealt with it. We really tied it back to social contract and how they broke the social contract. Because as we started to think about this more and more over that week that we were together, we started to really realize that the over-serving rule slash law-abiding, I mean, again, there's another principle that they broke. They didn't follow the law. The reason we have that law, the reason the state of Texas put that law into place is not for responsible people, people who take personal responsibility. It's for irresponsible people. It's the safety net. Yes, as a society, we have all come together to do everything we possibly can to prevent drunk driving. As parents, we teach our kids about drinking. We tell them, if you're out and you're drinking, you not get behind a wheel. Do not go behind, get in a car where someone who has been drinking gets behind the wheel. You call me. You won't get in trouble. You know, we have social service programs. We have uh, where we teach kids in school not to drink and drive. I mean, this is a big, huge push. And so people who are taking personal responsibility to not drink and drive are not the problem. 
The problem are the people who choose not to take personal responsibility. And as a society, because we can't just throw up our hands and say, well, some people aren't going to take responsibility. Let's just, you know, let the, the chips fall where they may. No, as a society, we said that's not okay. We have to have a safety net and, and make sure that these people do not get on the road. And one of those safety nets are bars. Bars can prevent people from getting on the road by not over-serving them. And when we tied it to that principle, and the, the jurors could easily see this, this violation of a social contract. Hey, I'm doing my part. Hey, I'm teaching my kids not to drink and drive. How come they get to, to, to leave their part off? It, it ties into so many of those other principles, the betrayal, the loyalty that we have to each other as fellow human beings, so many principles. And that's what I'm trying to, to really communicate here in this episode is that you don't have to frame your case to fit the worldview of all the individual jurors because it's impossible. They all come in with a variety of different frames, paradigms, values. But what you can do is tie your case, not to your client, but to the principle, because principles are something across the board that we either all agree with or we understand are things that are not to be violated. And that's where you get your verdict, my friend, because that taps in to a deeper need, this need to make sure that right prevails over wrong that light prevails over darkness. All of your cases have these themes in them. In fact, when I ask my clients, you know, they or they ask me, how do I get to the theme or the principle in my case? There's a couple of ways you can do it. One is I always ask my clients, what was the wrongdoing? Okay. And so for example, in the dram shot case, the wrongdoing was that the bar overserves, right? Clear. We're not to the principle yet though. That's just a fact. The second question gets us to the principle or the theme, which is why is that wrong? Now we get to, well, the social contract, the betrayal, the not keeping their promise, the trustworthiness, all that kind of stuff. Now we get to principle. So in your own cases, you can ask yourself, what was the wrong doing? And then why was that wrong? That will get you to the principle. You can also use the five whys, which I think I've talked about here on the podcast before. If I haven't, here it is, developed by the Toyota Co- Corporation, which is when you when you get to, let's say, your first, why was that wrong? Maybe it's not very deep. You know, maybe your first, why was that wrong? Is, well, there's a law in Texas that says they can't do that. Mm, we're still not to the principle yet. So ask yourself, why? Why is there a law in Texas? And so you might say, well because um, we don't want drunk drivers on the road. And this is one way to prevent it. And then you might say, well, why? Why don't we want drunk drivers on the road? And you continue to go down until, boom, you hit the principle. And you can do more than five whys or less than five whys, but I, five seems to be the magic number. It seems to get you to the, to the real issue in your case. So the point is, my friends, that your case is never about your client. It is always about the bigger principle hiding in your case in many, in many cases. And your job is to find that and not try to frame your case to the dozens of worldviews that may be presented in court that day, but to present it in terms of a principle because principles stand the test of time. 
And I highly recommend that you all go get the seven habits of highly effective people because he goes into principles in depth. And it's just such a great book, not just for, for that, but also for those of you who are interested in personal development, which I hope is all of y'all because you know, I'm all about personal development and that I believe that is the key to success in the courtroom. All right. We'll talk to you next time. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.